The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Our copy of God's Word now to Philippians 1, verse 27 through 30, verses 27 through 30 of Philippians chapter 1. If you're a guest with us, this is a great time to uh, be among us as we've just begun uh, this book, uh, Philippians. If you've been with us all month, then uh, let us rejoice as today we will finish the first chapter in uh, Philippians. So woohoo, we've got three more to go. Uh, we'll come back to it here after Christmas and uh, take chapters two, three, and four together in this series that we're calling Durable. Durable. But the, this morning we finish out chapter one in verses 27 through 30. Now, as we begin, and you're turning there, and uh, just to kind of uh, craft your thoughts around this, uh, there are a, a lot of opinions out there that exist about how a Christian should act, right? About Christian behavior and what uh, is uh, becoming of a believer. And you may hear things like, uh, well, if you're a real Christian, then you would do this. Or if you were, uh, you know, if you were truly following Christ, uh, you know, if uh, Jesus was here, he would do uh, uh, this and you know, it's often those uh, statements or those expectations and opinions come from outside of Christianity, but sometimes also from inside, as I think um, we are all trying to determine how do we live as a Christian, particularly in our times, and especially now, even as uh, we're at Christmas, what is a behavior that is becoming of a Christian? And so, um, if I were to ask you then, even as you think about that this morning, to create a list of traits that define a Christian, which, would, which ones would you include? You know, just a list of characteristics, Christ, those traits that mark a citizen of Christ's kingdom that are found in the scriptures which is really important as we even think about these things as uh, the source of where these expectations come from. They must be found in the scripture, not our opinions, not our preferences, and not of any sort of cultural expectations. See, there, is, there are rather characteristics that define a Christian citizen, a durable citizenship. For the Philippian believers whom Paul is writing the letter of Philippians 2, their Roman citizenship for them was a mark of great honor. You begin to, uh, uh, to get this, you pick up on this as you read through Acts 16, as uh, it recounts for us Paul's initial uh, evangelistic or missionary work in the city of Philippi. And you begin to see it in uh, Philippians in our passage today and also in chapter 3 of their citizenship being something that they, uh, their Roman citizenship rather, being something that they held very dearly. Though they were a city, Philippi was in the region of Macedonia, now Greece, uh, which today, just to kind of give your mind a, a picture on the map, even though they were in Macedonia, they were a Roman colony. And as such, they enjoyed both the protection and the privileges of Rome. And there were character expectations that uh, were ex uh, expected of them and laws in which they had to abide if they were to uh, be considered a Roman citizen. It's not unlike the protections and the privileges we enjoy as American citizens today, those expectations and the laws that exist for those who live in our country, those amendments we hold dear, the justice system that keeps peace and order. And yet for Paul, as he's writing to the Philippians, and for us now there was a danger that existed uh, even within the protection of that citizenship. There's a danger of living as a citizen worthy of Rome. 
or a danger of living as a citizen of America, but unworthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this is not to say that uh, these two citizenships are opposed, but to say that they aren't always synonymous. And as one citizenship that is eternal and under a sovereign Lord that always takes priority. And so this is why, as our verses begin today, this is why God brought the gospel purpose before us. He's brought a focus that to live as Christ and to die as gain before us here in these previous verses. And now he wants to show us here this main point to live as a worthy gospel citizen. With Christ before us and Christ above us. How then do we live as Christ would call us to? Well, let's turn now to our verses and be instructed as I read them for us. Here, follow along with me in your Bibles as I read it for us. Philippians 1, picking up in verse 27, says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is God's word for God's people. Would you pray with me just for a second? God in heaven, we just pause now to acknowledge that we have just heard your word. Would you give us hearts and minds that receive it with eagerness and hands and feet that are ready to obey all that you would call us to do? We need your help, Lord, the help of your spirit that you promised. So do that now as we listen and even as we go from here and as we seek to live this out. We need your help now. We pray in Christ's name. God's people said, Amen. 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 As you look at the verses here before us, this opening word really brings the whole passage to a head. There's an emphasis here in only, as in if it's Paul saying, here there is just one thing now, that all else takes a backseat. Everything else is second place. Forget everything else and put it aside and listen now to what I have to say. Underneath uh, the sovereignty of God, knowing that he is orchestrating everything in our lives to advance the gospel. And because we are earnestly wanting to live a life that says to live is Christ and to die is gain. Then he says, here are some things, some traits, some key things that your life, we believe in Christ. And as the result of a changed heart and mind, then we have changed actions. But the things that Paul would call us to do, if your heart has not been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you cannot live like this without the help of the Holy Spirit. And so there are some things then, as those who have been genuinely saved, those who've repented of their sin and believed in Christ, there are some things that are true of us. There are some laws of the land, some kingdom characteristics or some defining traits of Christians. And so uh, as you look at this first verse here, the importance is thrust upon us, but then there is something maybe that uh, is a little less clear for us because of our English translation here. There's a citizenship reference here in the word life. It could literally be translated, your life as a citizen. And so when Paul is is talking to them, he's saying, only let your manner of life as a citizen 
be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He would come back, like I said, in chapter 3, verse 20, where he would say that our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we await a Savior. We uh, await Christ. But the, uh, the idea now is that we are to live, even now, like we are among the Lord in heaven. And so here's the thing. As he puts it before us, here's what a life worthy of the gospel looks like. A life worthy of the gospel exhibits a few things. If you're taking notes with us, here's the first point. A life worthy of the gospel exhibits integrity. It exhibits integrity. We are to be men and women concerned with character. And so come back to your passage there in the first verse after the overarching charge to let your manner of life. He says, so that then, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, he then may hear a few things. And so this kind of, this character trait, it stands alone, but it is also kind of over the remaining three traits that we'll look at as we go. But what Paul is getting as whether he's there or not, their behavior won't change. Where is he now? He's in prison writing this. He spent time ministering among them. Now he's continued on his missionary journeys and he's in a Roman prison, but he's saying, whether I'm there or not, let your behavior be worthy of the gospel. It is this uh, character trait that we would call growing up or maybe even still today, you know, you must be on your best behavior. Ever say that? Some of you are cringing as you hear those words, right? Like, oh, I can hear it. It's like, Grandma's coming over for Christmas. We must be on our best behavior, right? Uh, So-and-so's coming. We're going to uh, Target to go shopping, and I want you to be on your best behavior. But we act differently when uh, certain people are around, don't we? Seems to be part of our human fallen nature, right? Uh, when the teacher's in the classroom, the students uh, listen, right? But as soon as that teacher departs and heads out the door, what happens? Chaos, right? Chaos, uh, everybody goes wild. The teacher's not in the room, or it's not something that we just graduate out of, right? It happens in the workplace as well. The boss is in the office on that day, or the boss comes on the job site, and all of a sudden, production just goes like, (laughs) but gone, and then things just, corners get cut, and they're not always working to the, with the most efficiency. Or it happens even in the church, right? When a pastor comes over to the house, right? Now, Pastor Eric comes over and all of a sudden we start talking to our kids with a little more patience and, and grace and uh, we put our arm around our spouse and, you know, well, all of us, we want to be seen as a model husband or wife. And you think the Philippians were tempted in the same way, whether Paul was with them or not? I think they maybe got there, uh, you know, they, they all of a sudden became a little bit more bold when the Apostle Paul was there with their evangelism. When he was gone, maybe, you know, it's just easier to, you know, to be a little more chilled out, to live with a little less urgency. The reality is, as people of the Lord, is that wherever we go, or no matter who we are with, the Lord is always with us, isn't he? As kingdom citizens, as people who love the Lord, this, uh, this reality of the Lord's nearness of us is, is both a comfort, right? That he walks with us through the darkest of valleys. He is with us through the hardest of trials. He is with us when we feel the most alone. And so his nearness to us is a comfort, but it is also a source of accountability, isn't it? It's a source of accountability that keeps us living with purpose and with focus and, and with a, an intentionality to be gospel-driven. 
so that no matter where we are or who we are with, there, there's no reason to put on a show. There's no reason to wear a mask. We, we are concerned, Paul would call in Colossians 1, those who uh, reside in the domain of darkness and have yet to be transferred into the kingdom of the beloved Son. And a stumbling block for those uh, outside of Christianity, those outside of the kingdom, is hypocrisy. Of Christians who, who, who say one thing but whose life is, is different, is hypocrisy then is a, is a trait of, of the domain of darkness, not of Christ's likeness. See, living with integrity is unusual. It's countercultural, isn't it? To be uh, a consistent in your character, in your home, and in your workplace. It's something that is unusual. It's countercultural. But it is something that is a massive witness for us as we seek to live for the Lord. Where, whereas even if the, somebody who is an unbeliever disagrees with us, they may disagree with our belief, they may disagree with our actions and what we are doing, but they will respect how we are doing it because they see a consistency that permeates all of our life. And so the call here that Paul is calling us to as a citizen worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to be the same gospel-minded person at church as you are at home, as you are at work, as you are on Facebook, as you are at school, as you are in Texas or on the mission field or no matter where you might be. The call this morning as a gospel-worthy citizen or a gospel-minded person is to be the same person as you would be with me, as you would be with your spouse or your kids or your fishing buddies or your siblings or small group members, co-workers, your mother-in-law, whoever it might be. See, we are to be men and women concerned with a consistent character, a people of integrity that no matter who we are with or where we are, even this Christmas week, as we are traveling and seeing people we may have not seen in a long time, or spending time with people that we love to let loose with, we must be men and women of integrity. But there's a second characteristic that he also points out for us. A life worthy of the gospel exhibits this second trait, a life of unity, to be men and women connected to an uncommon community. A life of unity connected to an uncommon community. And so whether Paul is there or not, that they are standing firm and striving together. As he begins to say this, uh, you get this picture in your mind of what the Christian life is like. Of, of what an uncommon community, of what life in the church and amongst the body of believers is all about. As he says, they're standing firm in the spirit. You get the picture in your mind of being immovable of being resolute and, and firm in both convictions and against the storms of the day. You get this picture that an uncommon community or the church is like a forest of trees, all roots interconnected, but strong and resolute against the storms that come and the prevailing winds that threaten to, to blow us over. He says that we're to be striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel. Again, what a picture of this uncommon community, right? Believers linked, arm and arm, facing whatever it may uh, come against. And this idea has been all over chapter 1, hasn't it? 
This idea of our interconnectedness, of the relationships that exist in the body of Christ that are durable and the fellowship that is rich and eternal here. It's been all over this chapter as we uh, think that we, you know, we're in this together no matter how separated we might be and that we are better off together. There are no renegade or maverick Christians, but rather we are united in spirit and in effort as we put our gifts and strengths and intellect together. See, because we know the sovereignty of God that is orchestrating all the things in our life to advance the gospel, and we are, in, as individuals, earnestly uh, desiring that our life would count for Christ, then that all happens exponentially better connected to this uncommon community we call the church. You want to grow in your understanding of God? I, I hope so. I hope you do want to advance the gospel to live missionally. Well, God has designed that then to happen corporately, this standing firm and striving side by side together for the faith of the gospel, advancing and defending the faith in us and among us, the body of truth that we love, the biblical truths that we embrace. That happens here in the church. You know, we have a doctrinal statement that we as members, we rally around, right? It's not the totality of truth, but it's our best way that we say, here are those important things, these not sanctified as we are going. And where is the strength of this testament, the strength of this standing firm and the striving side by side? Where is it proven, the strength of it? It's proven in battle. Man, hasn't 2020 been a, been a battle? <laughs> Hasn't it been a battle, a physical battle as we, as we face this, uh, this, this disease that is still among us? An emotional battle as we, as, as we uh, fight against isolation and depression and the separation that is uh, caused uh, through this as all the issues of 2020. And do you know where people have been finding hope and help? In the church. Right here. In our own church and in churches across the globe, though there has been a, a pandemic raging, the gospel has not suffered. As, as churches are continuing to proclaim Christ, as, as the Spirit is meeting with His people here, where the saints are being served and encouraged and built up as the, as the, uh, as the Scripture calls us to do, people are finding hope and help. We are standing firm in the faith and striving side by side in the faith of the gospel. Have we not? You know, I, I found this so interesting. Maybe you saw this poll that came out uh, this last week by Gallup. You're familiar with the Gallup polls? Well, they did this, uh, this, this little survey last week. You can see it here on the screen. It might be a little too small for you, but um, I can send out a link here later for the, so you can see the full, you know, the full results of it. But the, the gist of this poll was they uh, surveyed Americans just on their mental health and had them uh, rate themselves on a scale of like excellent on down. And they compared that, the, those ratings of excellent to now here at the end of 2020 versus at the end end of 2019. And as they collected all their data, they broke it out into many socioeconomic factors, some of which are there on the screen. Those, uh, they broke it out by gender, by race, by religious attendance, political affiliation, all these things. And uh, the, the percentages of those that marked it as excellence, basically in every category but one, saw decreases, many significant. As you look at it, you know, uh, amongst men, there was an 8% disc decrease. Amongst women, a 10 percent decrease amongst Republicans, a 15 percent decrease compared to last year. Imagine that. 
But it, everybody went down except for one. The only place that saw an increase of those who marked their mental health being excellent compared to 2019 to 2020 is, guess what? Those who came to church weekly. Those who came to church weekly saw a 4% increase. Now, what do these numbers tell us here? I mean, they're just, it's, it's a poll, it's statistics. Here's the thing you need to know. I put it in, but I thought this was so helpful. Why? Because the church is a safe place to bring your struggles, anxieties, and your depression. The church is the safe place to come when you're struggling, to be among God's people, to bring them here and to leave them with Christ. It's a place to be known and grown. It's a place to find hope and help for yourself and as you invite others in. Let me just ask you this morning, are you feeling weak and disconnected uh, this Christmas? I just want to graciously just to invite you in this morning to invite you into what God is doing here uh, through this church, to invite you into the, uh, the hope that the gospel offers through Jesus Christ. Maybe you're trying to figure things out. All, all this talk of the Lord and Christ and being born and dying for sin, maybe this is all new to you. The news that God is holy and we are not, that we're full of sin, but Christ came, was born as a baby, died the death that we were supposed to live and died, lived and died in our place, and that when we can repent of our sin and turn away from that, believe on Christ, that we can be saved. Maybe that's all new to you. I would invite you into that this morning. You can come to Christ. Maybe you already know the good news this morning. You're saved, but you're just you're struggling. It's been, it's been a time, hasn't it? But you've kept quiet and you've kept away and you've kept your distance. Let me warmly welcome you back into the fold. To come humbly, to come seeking help, knowing that the Lord is gentle and lowly will look to you. You don't have to battle it alone, but the Lord wants us to be connected to an uncommon community. You don't have to have it all figured out uh, before you come into Him. Come in, be among God's people, be united, striving, battling, protected here in the safe confines of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, this is a gospel-worthy trait. This is how we live and welcome one another. We live with integrity. We live with unity. But there's another gospel trait. A life worthy of the gospel here exhibits courage. We exhibit courage where we are men and women courageous against pushback. See, it's critical that we are connected to an uncommon community because the opposition against the faith is real and it requires courage. A life worthy of the gospel is fearless. Look how he begins with uh, verse 28. He says, And we are to not be frightened in anything by your opponents. See, every nation has its enemies, right? And every citizen, its opponents. Those whose ethics and behaviors are different. Those who want to come and conquer. They come from different values. They come from different masters. But every nation, including the nation, if we will, of heaven, heaven has an enemy in hell. And so citizens of heaven have their opponents. And as citizens of heaven, it requires courage to live like the gospel requires. It requires us to uh, be unafraid. See, following Christ isn't for the faint of heart, is it? It isn't a, a life of looking for just ease and comfort. To, a life to, well, now I can kick back because my eternity is secure and it does not matter how I live. 
No, the gospel would call us to take courage to speak up. It would call us to stand up for the truth, to live counterculturally, to decide things based on what the scripture values of what Christ would call us to do and not our own preferences. It would take courage to lay our life down, to lay our preferences down and to walk in obedience. But here's the reality. When you do, it will bring with it, you can expect opposition. You can expect those who who will not like it. Jesus told us, he warned us, he said it will happen. Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, he actually tells us, blessed are you when that happens. Blessed are you, it says in Matthew 5, 11 through 12, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus warned us, he told us, he, he told us to rejoice as we expect it to come. The Apostle Peter told the, uh, told the saints who were scattered and being persecuted under uh, Roman uh, rule as well. In 1 Peter 4, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised. This is 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Don't be surprised, church. When you're living for Christ, Jesus says, don't be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. It's not strange, it's normal. He says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. There's that word again. Because the spirit of glory in God rests upon you church, even as you would stand up, as you would be courageous, even if you think you are alone, and even if humanly speaking, you are the only one living for the Lord, being fearless in the face of opposition, you can know the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. You are not actually alone. The Lord is with you as you stand up, as you, uh, uh, when you get pushback for thinking and acting like a Christian. And here's the thing that as you come back to Philippians here, he's saying this is actually a good thing for you, isn't it? It's a good sign. Jesus told us, Peter told us that. Now Paul told us that. There's three witnesses in the scripture here. He says this is actually a good sign for you. Look back at verse 28 right there in the middle. He says, don't be frightened by anything by your opponents, but this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but to you of your salvation and that from God. If you are getting pushback from unbelievers, those that live differently, this is a sign actually that you're saved. Your life is different. And when that happens, unbelievers react. They, 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 uh, they want the old you if they knew you. They see the change that God has made in you and they're like, I, I don't like this. And they may even say, oh, you're a holy roller, goody two-shoes, whatever, you know, it might be. Because they want the old you. They want the sign of their destruction. It means they have to change too because they see the implications of what it means. If they don't embrace Christ, then they're not dumb. They know where it leads, where their life is headed. So we can be courageous and compassionate. Courage, being fearless, does not mean that we have to be offensive. It doesn't mean that we have to punch people in the nose with our faith. But it does mean that we do not need to back down. Why? Because we know the Lord is with us and this is a great sign. We are saved. We can even rejoice in it. We can live courageously as we speak about Christ as citizens of his kingdom. 
And furthermore, we can rejoice, we can take heart when we suffer for Christ. Because here's the final gospel-worthy trait that he brings out. If you want to live a life worthy of the gospel, a life worthy of the gospel then exhibits suffering. Men and women who count suffering as a gift, as a gift of sanctification. You may be thinking, uh, excuse me? Well, look closely at verse 29 here. I want you to see something here. He says, Paul says, For it has been, what? Granted to you. It has been granted to you, literally here, gifted, given to you. The same uh, root word here that, uh, as grace, the word that we use for like spiritual gifts. It has been granted to you. Philippian believers, we, redemption believers, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And now we think, well, yeah, faith is a gift, right? Like we all get that, right, church? I hope you do, right? Your faith in Christ, this belief is a gift. It has been given to us by God. Ephesians 2 uh, uh, lays that out clearly for us, right? By grace, you have been saved Anybody know it? Faith? And this not of your own doing? All right, we got to turn over there. Come on. Turn over a few pages. Philippians 2. I want you to see this. Maybe we do need it. Philippians or Ephesians 2, verse 8. Go over. It's just a few pages in your Bible. I love to hear your pages turn in here. Some of you digital Bibles, you're, you know, hit that left arrow a few times. It says this, Ephesians 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And so we get this. If you're a Christian today, it is a faith that has been given to you as a gift, the greatest gift you've ever been given, and it's because of Christ coming here as a man and all that he accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. But the second thing here, go back to Philippians 1 then. We get it that uh, our, our, our belief, our faith is a gift, but this suffering is a gift. Faith is the privilege of living in Christ's kingdom. The entrance there, it's part of the benefit of following Christ. Doesn't not the cost, but suffering. Yeah, suffering is a part of the privilege of living in Christ's kingdom. And, and let me just make this very clear. Suffering is a part of the benefit of following Christ, not necessarily the cost. It is not the thing that, well, I'm going to take the gift, I'm going to take the benefits, and then I just have this here. You know, And to, to be clear here, the suffering that he's talking about, is he specifically talking about suffering for Christ, not just the general suffering that we go through through life, uh, through illness and death and hardship, though the application is true, but what he's specifically referring to here is suffering because we are being a Christian, and this is a gift, though it is pretty startling for us, isn't it? We don't, we don't think about suffering as a, a, as a gift. Gifts are supposed to make us happy, right? Like underneath the tree, you're going to open some gifts in a few days, and that should bring joy and happiness to you. But if you were to open the box and it said, here, 2021 is going to be, here's a thorn for you to suffer with. You wouldn't, yeah, you wouldn't necessarily see that as a gift. And yet the scripture would speak of this uh, in the midst of the pain as a gift to us. You know, it's so startling. It's so uh, countercultural. It's so uh, counterintuitive to even how we think that we don't even have like a good English word, just a one word thing that would describe suffering well. 
like a characteristic that would describe somebody who suffers well. That's why it's like, well, here's a mark. It's, it's suffering. Like, we just don't even have the word. But we don't, we don't have that because we always think in suffering in terms of the negative, in terms of the cost. And yet, here we're being reminded that this is a gospel-worthy trait. That life in the kingdom means receiving the gift of suffering for the gospel just as Jesus did. He suffered to the point of death. And just as, as Paul did as well, that's why in verse 30 he says, you're engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had. That's Acts 16. He, he, he suffered there. We'll read it in just a bit. And, and hear that he now still has as he's in prison. And so listen to the suffering that Paul says was a gift to him. This is back in Acts 16, that slave girl that we've referenced in previous weeks that, uh, uh, that was dogging Paul and, and, and preaching. And so Paul gets annoyed and he casts the demon out. And then after they uh, see that they've lost their prophet, the slave girl, as she you know, could see the future and all those things, it says this in Acts 16, 19. But her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone. So they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Here's where, you get this, see, here's where a Roman citizenship collides with gospel citizenship. They're just preaching a different message that is countercultural. And so what does the crowd do? It says, the text goes on, it says, The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore their garments off, off them, gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had afflicted many blows upon them, they threw them in prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. See, they knew this. The Philippian believers knew this. They saw what had happened to Paul. They also saw his deliverance and how God uh, uh, would deliver them later that night as they're praying and singing and he would send a, an earthquake and they would get out of jail. But all of this was a gift. And you may be thinking, well, how, like, help me understand this, Blair. How, does, how, does, how could suffering be a gift? Well, let me just give you four reasons that the scripture would play it. That would, would show us. Suffering is a gift. Why? Because it produces endurance, character, and hope. Suffering is a gift because it produces endurance, character, and hope. Romans 5, 3, and 4 say, Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. See, as we walk through suffering, it makes us more steadfast, more durable in our faith, more, uh, uh, more, with more perseverance. And as we do that, it produces that character, that integrity, that growth and godliness that we want, and the hope that we, that we need that, would, would, uh, that would, would dispel and hold back the, the isolation and the depression and the things that keep us uh, uh, inside ourselves. We want the hope of Christ. We want the character that comes from following Christ. And we want the durability to make it to the end in God's classroom for that. His gift. As we realize that this earth is not our home, that our earthly citizenship is not the last word about us, suffering reminds us then that there is something better awaiting for those who follow Christ. It keeps our eyes on the end. It teaches us a dependence, lest we start becoming too independent in our own strength, thinking we've got this. It teaches us that, no, we are weak and dependent people. It keeps our eyes on the end, lest we become too in love with this earth. 
This is a gift to us, church. It's a gift as we long to be with Christ, as we long to say, like Paul said in the previous verses, that to die is gain. There's a third gift. Third gift, suffering is a gift because it proves your faith. Again, for Peter is helpful and instructive to us. First Peter 1, 6 and 7, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith. Peter is referring to the same thing that Paul refers to here, that, that it is proving our faith. It is a clear sign as you suffer for Christ. It is a clear sign to you. You need assurance that you are uh, saved. You need assurance that you uh, will make it to the end, that you are beloved of Christ. Well, if you are suffering, this is God's gift. Your reminder, the alert that God is sending you by his grace as a gift to say, church, you are saved. Beloved, believer, son, Daughter, you are saved. There's a fourth gift that comes from it and is the purifies our faith. Verse goes on, he says, The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As the heat is turned up, it is, it is purging us of sin that remains. It is refining us. It is softening the rough edges uh, that our sin has created in our attitude and in our mind and in our behavior. And so as we walk through this gift of suffering, God uses it as only He can do under His sovereign goodness that we've sung about and, and, uh, and embraced and prayed in light of. God is doing a good work purifying and testing our faith in the same way that a precious metal is purified through the flames of fire. See, what suffering teaches us is that what we are gaining is far better than anything that we might lose through suffering, including our physical life. Even if it takes us to the point of death, that even to die is gain. But let me just say that it doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt, right? It doesn't mean that suffering, it doesn't sting. It doesn't mean that we can't grieve or cry or lament. It means only that through the pain, we see the sovereignty and goodness of God. We see what it is producing and pointing and proving and purifying in us. And though it may not feel like it in the moment that we are going through it, suffering is good. It's a gift and it's a gospel-worthy trait of our citizenship. It's part of the benefits of following Christ. And though this may run counter to any other citizenship you embrace in the same way that it did for the Philippians and the Romans and their citizenship, that you can be sure that if you've been given the gift of faith in Christ, then the second gift comes with it. Now, these traits here, these are only four. They are not all the only traits of following Christ, but they are defining traits. They are distinctly Christian traits that cause us to identify with Christ over any other citizenship. These are traits that are cross-cultures. They transcend time. They transcend language. They are traits that mark us as citizens of a heavenly kingdom that tell others that Christ is worth it all. On our own, left to ourselves, we would never embrace these traits. We would crumble. We would do whatever we want to do. But God is calling us to something bigger in Christ Jesus, proving to the world that following Christ is the most worthy thing we could ever do. By the help of His Spirit, and may even as we close here, may the help of the Spirit lead us 
and lend us his empowering aid as we keep Christ in focus before us even this Christmas. Church, would you pray with me now?